Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 50, and I'm Roger Pang from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And I'm here, as usual, with the Not So Standard Deviations Director of Data Science, Hillary Parker, also data scientist at Stitch Fix. So you want to go start with follow-up here? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. So we got a little bit of uh, feedback regarding the um, GANs. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I did. So the, yes, in the Kaggle survey of the state of data science, we there was a question about what's the kind of what's the most I don't remember the exact question. Kind of like what's the most popular statistical method that you use or whatever common method that you use. And number one was logistic regression, um, uh, which I thought was rightfully so. And then way down at the bottom was something that was something that was uh, abbreviated as GANs, and we thought, wow, that must be a, a typo. They must mean GAMs, which are generalized additive models. Um, turns out that there is something, and this seems plausible, that, <laughs> that what they actually meant was gener- generative adversarial networks. Um, does, that, does that ring a bell? Nope. Not <laughs> okay. at all. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> well, it probably says something that it was like 2% of respondents, um, and so... We're not the only ones. Um, yeah. I, my understanding from the Wikipedia page, uh, which I'm sure is <laughs> authoritative, is that the idea, it, the idea I've heard about this, where you have kind of like two models and they kind of like compete against each other in a certain, in a certain way. So like one model generates, let's say, images, for example, and the other model tries to classify them. And the idea is that one model is trying to trick the other model to get them to the point, get the other model to the point where they can't really tell the difference between the real, like a real cat and the, something that's not a cat or whatever. Um, and so that's my very extremely high level understanding of this approach. Yeah. I mean, it seems reasonable. I mean, it's like, yeah, the opposite of optimization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it is optimization, but it's like the opposite, right? <laughs> yeah, the other side like, of the yeah, coin, just I guess. The, the other way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, You're like getting it to get it to work. the models feel as, bad? You know, right. it's just like, hey, why can't you help me? <laughs> it's making my life harder here. <laughs> yeah, do you think the models have feelings? Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Okay. Probably not. All right. So um, <laughs> I just want to thank all of our listeners who uh, quickly have pointed that out to us. Yeah. I yeah. thought it was nice. I remember someone tweeting like, oh, it makes me feel good that they didn't know that. So yes, I'm glad we could help. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I think there's many ways that I can make other people feel better. <laughs> in that, yeah. In that yeah. Sense. Like how... <laughs> Let's talk about something else we don't know. Our lack of knowledge. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Happy happy to help wherever I can. Yes. Anyway, so a number of people tweeted that at us. And thank you. So we have the best listeners is all I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. Um, The other thing um, was a tweet that came from uh, Matthew, I'm going to say, Feichert. F-E-I-C-K-E-R-T. And he was referring to our little discussion at the end of the episode about... um, the kind of data versioning or data tracking tools. Um, so first off, awesome that he listened all the way to the end of the episode. But second of all, he, so he says, um, I was listening to episode 49, and during the data versioning discussion, I had to laugh when you mentioned CERN, given that I was running into data versioning issues this week with making a public plot. And then he goes on and says, um, we have a system set up for recording and versioning processings and reprocessings of the LHC experiments data 
But when it comes to chunking those data into runs and specific data sets or generated n-tuples, we don't have anything at the individual scientist level working yet. Oh, interesting. I'm not 100% sure I understand what he's saying. (laughs) Yeah. But um, my guess is that, so I guess I feel like my very cursory understanding of the the Large Hadron Collider, this LHC, how it works is that they they do experiments, right? And these experiments spit out like a ridiculous amount of data. Like you would never look at it like just by itself, right? And then that data gets processed into or gets refined into something kind of slightly more sensible, but still kind of crazy. Um, and perhaps, so that, I guess, is versioned and recorded and whatever. Uh, but then your individual scientist is going to take an even smaller subset of that, perhaps. I see, yeah. Um, and I, this is true for many large kind of scientific collaborations where, you know, you have a, there's a multi-tier, there's a multiple tiers of kind of how the data travel, and any given scientist is only going to look at some piece of it. Um, but the the larger tiers kind of above it or below it or whatever you want to call it are tracked. Um, but then at some point, there's a there's a point where it's, it's kind of just gets lost, basically. Not lost, but it doesn't get versioned, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me, too. Although it sounds like, I mean, I yeah, I would definitely be interested in hearing more details about that because the way you described it, that seems like that you could still recreate any version of a process data set or like a smaller subset from the the version snapshot, right? Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, at, but like for any, but that, but I think the issue is that the process data set may not correspond to any given publication. You know what I mean? So, um, or it may correspond to like twenty different publications, all of which kind of took some subset of that processed set. Yeah, and so, and then that would just probably just be like a pain to continue versioning like versioning at every level would be too much well it seems to me it seems to make sense that at the kind of like higher levels we can all agree on like how things get versioned because it probably doesn't happen that often and um and there are it's like that those kind of higher level raw data sets are more kind of common to everybody uh, but then when you get to the individual scientist level, everyone's kind of doing a different thing. And so it's hard to have like a common versioning system that, that, that captures everybody's use case because everyone's doing something that's like very different. Um, yeah. And I guess like if the scientists aren't using reproducible methods to do that, then you'll have something that's in tra- like you can't figure out what version of data it used to create the process data set. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, which would probably happen frequently, even in the best of organizations. <laughs> the other thing I'll say is that I, you know, these LHC experiments, I think they're they're pretty high stakes. I mean, they're in the scientific stakes, I guess. Um, and uh, so there's tremendous amount of pre- uh, what's the word incentive, I guess to say, to kind of make sure that the process is super rigorous, right? I mean, I think that everything is version and everything is tracked because these are really high stakes kinds of things, and like. It's like the entire community is involved, um, but it's also a bit of an outlier when it comes to scientific investigations. Right, like <laughs> the vast majority of scientific investigations do not operate at this level, um, and so uh, I think there isn't. Most of the investigations operate at the level at which he's referring to, and where there's no tracking. Right, I mean the kind of individual scientist kind of data set level. Um, yeah. So. Oh, how? So, <laughs> if it's a large hadron collider. Does that mean that it, like how many collisions of 
large hadrons happen or hadrons in a large this is the part a large collision this is the part of the podcast where we make other people feel better yeah exactly yeah i wanted to make sure we had the opportunity to um i have no idea i have no, I don't, I don't, you asking me physics yeah i don't even know i know it's a it's a big loop right and yes like, yeah and it goes through three countries i think really yeah i think it's like i think it's switzerland france and italy yeah wow yeah and uh, apparently, if That's you walk amazing. along the if you walk along it like a, inside the tube or whatever, it it tells you like what country you're in, you know. So oh, cool, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if they have like passport control in there. So yeah, it would be interesting <laughs> to know how many collisions occur. Like, is it once a month or once a day? Oh yeah, like I what type know. of data versioning is happening here? Yeah, like how many experiments do they run and like how frequently? Yeah, exactly. And do they repeat? The collisions <laughs> are they running these in triplicate i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well maybe one of our listeners can uh, can let us know this i'd be curious because then that would have implications in terms of the volume of data that's kind of coming out uh, yeah, yeah if it's like one of those i it's funny there was a big data conference that um hopkins put on a few years back do you remember this oh but, yeah the uh, very large data sets conference yeah that's right yeah and it was like oh yeah it's cute that genomics thinks they have big data sets but then like you look at uh, astronomers and it's just like unbelievable (laughs) volumes of data anyway yeah yeah so um yep all right so i think (laughs) that's our uh i think that's our follow-up for it wasn't that much but uh uh for today unless you had anything else did you see anything else on the internet no i didn't Okay. There was one little piece of news that I wanted to mention, um, which is not, uh, which is an article from the wall street journal. Uh, and the headline for the, uh, article was stop using Excel finance chiefs tell staffs. Wow. (laughs) I did not see this. Yeah. That's very exciting. Do you read the wall street journal? (laughs) (laughs) I I have a, I pay for the digital subscription. Oh yeah. Okay. So, I do. Um, it was, yeah, I don't know. I didn't, it wasn't like, I would have thought an article like this would have been a little bit more popular, but I think perhaps, perhaps because there's a it's subscription only that like, it doesn't quite, quite go viral like other stories. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it's not what you think though. I mean, I, 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 so the story is like basically in many companies in the finance divisions, at least um, Excel is kind of used as like this data fusion point where like people integrate data from many different systems and then, my guess is like effectively copy and paste it into Excel um, or, or, or export CSV files and then read them into Excel. um, And then, uh, and then analyze the data in Excel once it's all been kind of fused at this point. Right. And I guess there, people were, I think rightfully complaining that there's, that's like a huge bottleneck, right? Like, because then first of all, you're creating this like snapshot of the data in a, in a regular kind of way. And then what, if the data changes, then you kind of got to repeat that whole process again, and it's very inefficient, right? Yeah. Um, so, but if, so the, uh, anyway, the article goes on to say that, well, a lot of these companies are now moving to these kind of, what I, I think of as basically cloud-based systems, um, where there's basically an Excel in the cloud that kind of links up with various database systems via APIs, I assume. Um, and so it's not rather than cut and paste the data from the Oracle database, you can suck it into whatever this cloud-based system is, cloud-based Excel, essentially. 
um, uh, and do the same kind of thing. So it's um, it solves the kind of fusion, I guess, problem. Um, mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's the same, I think. Well, I mean, I've seen, I feel like I've seen demos of this type of software and it does involve, it usually has like smart kind of pivot functionality and dashboarding and, you know, like, um, like souped up Excel. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just in terms of like analytics. Right. Right. Um, The idea here, I think, I mean, people are using Excel. We've talked about this before. People are using Excel as a dashboard basically. Right. Uh, Right. And the data that feed into that dashboard, they had previously been like copying pasting by hand essentially right um mm-hmm. <laughs> which makes for a pretty crappy dashboard right? yeah <laughs> um so i think the idea here is that you have an actual dashboard which actually updates updates the data in like you know real time mm-hmm. well yeah. plus you could do some analysis they're, they're catching on is this it was it primarily you were saying it was like finance departments so well the article was referring to cfos you know telling their staffs right, right? yeah 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 that's cool. That yeah. seems that seems like progress. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess so. I guess so. Here's a question I have, though. One is that I mean, I'm not saying that some manual process is a good thing, right? Where you're just like importing CSV files and cutting and pasting and whatnot. Um, but on the other hand, having like a, a system, I, I, my guess is that the software has figured this out already. But having a system where the data are constantly kind of dynamically being updated seems like it could be a little dangerous too right because then you would never if the data were always being updated you would never have an instant where you could it would be hard to reproduce things wouldn't it i mean yeah i surely it surely these systems have um ways to set date ranges because like i mean quarterly quarterly numbers are so important and so i can't imagine i feel like that would just be a necessary feature for anything that a cfo would be recommending well, um, but even if it's something like date ranges, what if, I mean, what if someone says someone goes into the system and says, "Oh, you know, like I put that number in, but it was wrong, so let me update it here, give the right, put the right number in," you know? So that could be yeah. within the right date range, but there would be different numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and it, I mean that definitely happens, uh, and you'll see like little caveats on graphs where it's like, "Oh, we updated the forecast," or you know, we had to. Like we had to account for the database going down for two hours, or you know something like that. Um, it's fairly common. Yeah, I I would be interested in knowing what the software looks like because I'm sure it's not the stuff that I'm used to seeing. But if it's kind of optimized for the finance case, but I don't know, maybe it is. Yeah, it seemed like I don't know. It seemed like a lot of accounting type software. But I didn't, I didn't look into it very deeply because I didn't anticipate ever having a need to use it. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, you know, who knows? I might be. I am the, am I the CFO of not so standard deviations? Uh, perhaps. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All <laughs> right. I'll, I'll look into it. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Please do. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So, one the one topic I wanted to talk about today was kind of based on a blog post that I wrote uh, for a couple of like a week or two ago about kind of what makes for a good data analysis and this is a topic that's kind of recurring I think on this podcast um, and uh, and I was just thinking about um, well and I, I kind of I, the blog post is like in retrospect is very strangely written because I start off with this long thing about memory management systems in programming languages um 
and uh, and it's based on like a, a conversation that happened on another podcast about uh, and it kind of talk discussing the kind of the benefits of of garbage collection versus another system called automatic reference counting and the bottom line is basically that like uh when you're programming in these kinds of languages you need to be able to reason about how the memory is being allocated and deallocated so you need to know is this object does this do i have this is the memory for this object available or not right and certain systems allow you to kind of reason about that kind of more easily than others um, and I think the, the aim of, of like a garbage collection system, similar to like what we use in R, is that you don't have to worry about memory, right? Um, and so like if you're, if you're using R, you never think about, oh, do I have the memory to allocate this data frame or vector, right? You just, R just handles that for you. Um, and uh, whereas in other programming languages like C, you have to allocate and deallocate the memory kind of explicitly. Um, and uh, and his R, and so... So like the so so this guy Chris Latner who designed the Swift programming language and um, he his argument was that garbage collection is is bad in the sense that it it doesn't let you reason about so it doesn't let you reason about how the memory is going to be used and so like if you're designing a large system do you, you know programming a large system do you actually want people to quote to quote unquote not think about memory <laughs> and I think for people like us maybe that's a little bit abstract I think but I think for programming people who are programming more kind of heavily it's a reasonable question to ask i think um and so i think uh, similar i think there's a similar is an ad so this is maybe a little bit of analogy corner here actually um (laughs) (laughs) there's a I, i think a similar question that you can ask in data analysis which is like um there are very there are kind of a there are often a variety of ways to get to a a result and um Oh, and, and first of all, okay, first of all, this is a, you can make a distinction between kind of the result and the process, which obviously is not revolutionary, right? Uh, and there may be a variety of ways to get to the result, and the question is which which way is are there are some ways better than others, um, and and how do you evaluate which ways are better than others, and what's the kind of scheme that you use? Um, and I think um, and so I was trying to, I was trying to kind of come across this idea that, or try to put out this idea that the schemes that are better are the ones that let you reason about the data, right? They let you kind of think, see how the data filter, like kind of flow through to, uh, to kind of influence whatever the result happens to be. Right. Yeah. Right. So, well, so like if I'm understanding correctly, something that would not be what you're talking about is sort of a, like one function that does an entire analysis for you, where it's just like, Oh, okay, I'm going to spit out like various metrics and dashboard or like, you know, metrics and graphs and um, you won't even have to like look at the data because we'll do it all for you. That would be kind of the opposite of what you're saying. Right. I think that would be the extreme one end. Right. Um, and, I, and an example that I use in the post was basically like calculating a correlation coefficient. Right. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so a correlation coefficient is it's informative. It tells you something right about say two two variables right um but it kind of doesn't tell you how it doesn't say anything about how you got there and then of course the famous example is the anscombe's quartet right which has four different plots all with the same correlation coefficient um but all look very different right yeah yeah i think if you look up correlation coefficient on wikipedia they have such a graph on 
as like the image for the Wikipedia article where it's like a bunch of stuff that there's clearly a lot of pattern in the data, but the correlation coefficient is zero. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so, so that's kind of, that was the kind of the gist of the post. I kind of wanted to expand on it a little bit uh, here because I, I don't know, I've just been thinking about it and um, I, I, so if the one, I guess the one question might be like, if the one extreme is say like dashboards with numbers, right. Um, that just kind of plot, kind of that kind of just process the data. Uh, I, what is the if if you imagine this kind of stuff on a spectrum, like what is the other extreme? Uh, and um, yeah, like hand drawn graphs, Tufty style, like <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> like how about like simulating the data with like clay figures <laughs> that you like craft in the moment, like something some sort of like real world expression of the data. Like handcrafted. Am I going uh, too far? <laughs> like, let's say it was a medical study and you had like patients in two groups and you like create clay figures of each patient. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the direction I, I was going at all. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if it's like like something where you really have to get the noted data, like that would be one way. Like, you really feel it. Right. Uh, oh, okay. I see where you're going. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like you're like something where you like go through the whole body process of being each data point. <laughs> right. You like you physically lay hands on the patient. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, you went like way farther than I was planning on going. Actually, but that's like that's a good point. Actually. <laughs> Yeah, why don't we go back to like reasonable discussion? <laughs> Where were you going with it? Well, okay, so I was going to like so one issue with like a scatter plot, right? Is that it doesn't give you a, a it doesn't give you it doesn't give you a summary, right? In some way, in some sense, right? It just it presents the data in a different way, but it doesn't give you a, like sometimes you need a number, right? Yeah. Uh, especially right. if you're going to be moving on to the next step, uh which is uh I mean, whatever it may be, right? It's um, so. For example, maybe you're going to take that correlation, stick it into some other algorithm, and then that algorithm is going to produce a result, right? Um, you can't stick like a piece of paper with a scatter plot on it into the algorithm, right? <laughs> um, and so sometimes you do need a like a result. And so, but I think no, I think you, I think what you said is better. Actually, it's 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 in some sense like going back to like you can imagine going back to like the original forms that you collected yeah, the data yeah. on, right? Uh, since we often collect data still on forms so um it's uh yeah and then like you filled out the forms like (laughs) if you you go to each patient are filling out like exactly what happened right so i mean it's true that people get intuition for the data from collecting it for sure uh, just from like the physical act of taking the data yeah, yeah. And they, like, start to pick up on trends, and that would inform how they do the analysis later on. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, there's a lot that's kind of not encoded, in my experience, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in the, whatever the the instrument, right? I mean, people say this is a measurement issue, right? Um, mm-hmm. But there, often there's, like, little stories that, like, the, you know, that the field staff will talk about or whatever, that are like, huh, I mm-hmm. wonder if that's like a systemic problem, <laughs> you know, or like, right, you know, yeah, or if that's something that affects the kind of the general data collection. Yeah, it's true that I feel like the the biggest 
aha moments or like the times when I feel like I've had a big win from an analysis are usually just detecting something like that where there's, you know, something, something weird was happening and you notice it in the data and then you find an example that shows that that was what was happening, you know, anecdotally. (laughs) And you're like, oh yeah, like see how, like, I mean, the example I keep thinking of is that one time, um, when I was at Etsy, we ran an experiment on, um, being able to see the password as you're typing it into um, like an app, like the the app to sign in. And um, they forgot to turn off. Well, let me, <laughs> we saw like a big decrease in successful sign-ins and a big increase in the wrong password uh, being typed in, like password failures. And so I guess, Roger, what would be your guess for what was causing that? Um... Uh, I have no idea, actually. So, <laughs> so you allowed them to see the password, and they were typing it in more frequently incorrectly. Yes, exactly. Huh. I have I have no clue. <laughs> it's it's easier than you might think. I this is I used to I'm like scooping myself because I'll use this in talks sometime. Oh, no. But um, well, no nobody listens to this podcast anyway, so I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, no one. Yeah. <laughs> No, but like people would guess um, things like, you know, people feel less secure doing it or, you know, something, something, which they're all like good guesses. But it was actually that we forgot to turn off autocorrect on the password field. (laughs) And so So, people's passwords are getting autocorrected to something else. (laughs) Wait, so actually, so this is like a thing that I was that like, I don't know. It's like, so when you create like a form field, you can specify whether autocorrect is on or not. Is that right? I think so. I like, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not an, an engineer, okay. but uh, yeah. I, I, it, it seemed like it was something like that, just some setting where you could easily fix it. Um, and so once they fixed that, we could actually run the experiment, but it was, I don't know, it was like this great moment where I just, I saw, it wasn't even a project I was working on, but I saw the email where a person was like questioning it and I was just like, I know what this is because I had so many problems with autocorrect. <laughs> <laughs> in my well, life yeah and, so- <laughs> and passwords are usually like gibberish right unless and so the only passwords exactly. that would fly would be ones that are actually words which are usually not good passwords exactly and like usually they'll be like numbers and stuff but autocorrects will take those out it, yeah it was kind of like the perfect <laughs> it was the perfect situation for an unusual but the point is like if someone if you had someone hand collecting data or user researcher they would definitely pick up on that right away right, right? yeah well um, okay then, yeah but then the question just to take this you know a little bit further is you know what kind of analysis would allow you to, to detect that problem right because you can imagine a situation where you have an automated pipeline that just calculates the you know the success rate or whatever right Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. you can see the success rates is going down, and that's actionable, right? Like you, you could maybe do something about that down the line, right? Um, but what? But I, I feel like you need a kind of analysis that shows you that could potentially reveal that kind of ish, that kind of problem, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean it was. Uh, I mean, in this case, the analysis included those two key metrics, but you wouldn't know ahead of time. It's not the type of thing you would be like this per like the people who did the analysis originally and were sending out a summary of it to just like the whole company like they they included those things, but just as like we have no idea what's going on here. this seems really weird um and not as like a like oh, these two pieces of evidence are going to come together and show you this other thing 
Um, and so, I mean, yeah, sometimes I just feel like I'm making stuff up all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> I mean, don't you feel that way? Like, cause it was like, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, I hate autocorrect and I've had issues with that. And, and then it was just, I, it was like just a really quick moment where it was like, oh yeah, this data is consistent with an autocorrect issue where like someone like passwords are getting autocorrected and so failures are up. And that would definitely decrease, like, <laughs> successful sign-ins. <laughs> that was kind of the whole point. Um, and so it was, um, yeah, I mean, now, yeah, I feel like I'm, I, I mean, don't you feel like you make up stories a lot? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like your intuition and experience using the web and apps, and it's all, like, coming together, right? I mean... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is part of why I feel like it's so important for data scientists to have like genuine interest in the products they're working on. Um, right. The, like to kind of be to be engaged in the in the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah, cuz there's just going to be so many things that come up like that where it is true that someone with like who's never seen a web form before could probably pick up on those two things and, you know, reason to it eventually, but the the extent to which you can iterate. I mean, so like backing up, it's part of what makes it a successful strategy is that experiments are so cheap in a web setting. And so the idea that you would like have something go wrong, be able to fix it, relaunch it, have it go better immediately is like, you can, you can essentially make that causal link by running a new experiment that fixes the thing you think was causing the problem. And then um, try it again. And try it again, yeah. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I so I feel like these are two, <laughs> they were connected in my head. I'm not sure that they are, but but like the idea that you can just iterate really fast when you have product intuition and maybe you're going to be wrong, you know, some percentage of the time, but you'll be able to like rapidly think of new hypotheses to test when you have product intuition. And I think that just takes so much longer if you don't. Right. Or... Yeah, or you just don't do it. You just kind of move on, right? And then that's not good either. Right. right? You're like, yep, that failed. Moving right. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we had something We had something like that, too, with um, Checkout once, where it was, uh, um, we we saw decreases in, we, we were trying to, like, streamline the checkout process. I feel like every e-commerce site is trying to do that, like... <laughs> Like try to pay as fast as possible, right. <laughs> and um, and um, and so, but there was something we and it the thing totally made sense. We thought it was good, and um, it was showing decreases in checkouts, which is really bad. You know, you have to turn that off immediately, and um, and this was just a simple segmentation where it's like, well, let's break it down by browsers, and then there was like the old like internet explorer like we like totally broke it for version like seven and lower or something like that it was just <laughs> like uh but it was again the same thing where we could just like turn it off for those browsers rerun the experiment show an increase but it does sometimes i wonder you know in both of these cases having a good uh like having doing extensive QA before launching stuff would also catch these issues. And so, but I think the idea is it's faster to just get in front of users and if problems occur, like turn it off really quickly. It's kind of like the Facebook move fast and break things. Um, Cause you kind of have to get it in front into like the diversity of scenarios that it will 
eventually experience, right? And so yeah, exactly. Yeah, like setting up user testing for every single web browser out there is kind of not reasonable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you still don't want people to break things, so you know it's just kind of like a funny. It's a it's a mix of. I mean, that's what that's why it's hard to be a product person in these companies, because you have to figure out the right balance of what's right for the customers and what's right for, you know, like getting it right the first time and not just moving fast and breaking things, but like, you know, trying to be careful. Um, but also like things would be kind of prohibitively expensive and websites would never change if you had to like really rigorously test everything. Right. Yeah. 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 One of the things that I've been, uh, well, I was one of the points I was trying to make originally was that like I think there, it's it feels like for some people there is a goal um, to kind of build methods where you don't have to worry about stuff, right? Oh um, yeah, where you for don't have sure. to worry about the distribution of the data, you don't have to worry about the nature of the relationships, non-linear or linear things like that. You don't have to worry about typically the assumptions that you make when you use traditional methods, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think that especially like in, and I didn't say this in the blog post because I didn't really want to get into it, but I think it's like a, to me it seems like a big theme in like the causal inference uh, area um, where some kind of people in the area are trying to develop these methods where they're, they're highly non-parametric and you can look at, you can kind of develop, you can estimate kind of causal relationships without having to worry about complex assumptions about distributions or things like that. Um, and it, as if kind of basically I'm kind of as if that were the goal. Right. And, uh, and I kind of feel like, I think the one thing that say scientific investigations and what you're talking about have in common is that, you know, we're dealing with very complex systems um, that over which we have only partial control, right. If any. And, um, and the idea that you're to set as a goal of, that we're going to develop a method that allows us to not worry about all those things that are going on in this complex system, um, it seems like not the right. Uh, to me, it doesn't seem like the right goal. It's not because it's like you don't want to be in a situation where people aren't thinking about those things, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I totally agree with that, and I also totally agree that the. The momentum is always towards a kind of set it and forget it. This solves this problem solution Um, where it's just like, I mean, I feel like I always talk about this example, but my biggest one is A-B testing systems where there is so much pressure or I don't know, pressure might not be the right word, but like everyone thinks at every company that you can solve A-B testing by like making the appropriate tool where like data flows through it and A-B testing occurs, you know? Right. And then answers emerge. Answers emerge and a green light goes off and then you know that you're good. And like, and I mean, that might be reasonable. I think it's an interesting field because it probably, I mean, everyone's always like, well, it's so simple and you just have like a green button versus a blue button and you test it and why should this be complicated? But I, it might be like the part of me that's like, eat your vegetables. Like, (laughs) I just, I just really hate that. Like, I feel like every single experiment might have nuance and without people going through and doing what you're talking about, like, and who are excited to do that, you're not going to like, it just, it kind of like kills that process and you don't, you aren't a more efficient business for it, you know? If you kind of highly, if you were to finally kind of come up with this system of automating 
you know, the dream system of automating A-B testing. Yeah. I mean, I've just, I, I know, I know Facebook uses one and I think, I mean, and I, I know they have like, you know, John Miles White at Facebook does, um, research on sort of testing like ex- online experimentation. So, I mean, they have like really serious and good data scientists who focus on it for that application. But, um, I still just, I personally, in my experience, I don't ever think I've found a, a place where it's just working great. It's like, oh yeah, we have the system and therefore <laughs> like we don't have to worry about decisions about, you know, experiment results. Because I feel like if you, if you oversimplify it, then people don't have the expertise. Like they're not trained in the expertise of understanding the nuance of experimentation. Right. So then when you get a false positive or something weird, everyone's like, Oh no, like it, like it, it adds, it adds work. Cause it's like the uncertainty was obfuscated away. And then when it pops up, it's like a big disaster. Um, yeah, I mean, I think under, so understanding the nuance of various situations is a is a theme that I'm interested in because uh, I mean, I think there are obviously there are times when you want to no longer think about things, right? Because you want to move on to the next thing, um, and I think if you have enough experience with a certain type of problem, and you can, and you know you can you can kind of categorize all the different things that will kind of come up, then maybe then you can you can you can abstract that and then like automate it and then you can kind of move on to the next problem and so like like one area where i kind of where where this kind of hit me which is a very simple area was that if you have like a non-parametric model there's usually some smoothing parameter that you have to figure out right and um and and there was and there's all this work going into like smoothing like algorithms for smoothing parameter selection right um and i always kind of like wondered why people cared about that because whenever i did like a smoothing thing you know it was usually in two or two or maybe three dimensions and you know, I would just look at the plot and see whether there was an it was an appropriate amount of smoothness, right? Um, uh, but then later, I, you know, I learned about generalized additive models and all these other things where you have like many, many, many smoothers, and you're trying to select like 20 different smoothing parameters all at once, right? And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> I can't do that by head. We're gonna have to like there's gonna be an algorithm, but that's like a very narrowly defined problem, and it's like we can kind of understand what's gonna happen, and maybe we can just automate that away, right? Um, but the things that I think you're talking about are like very complex systems and it's like no, no one person or even group of people has all the experience to, to understand all the various things that will come up. Right. Um, uh, I, I encountered this also when, you know, you know, we, we teach like, uh, like statistical algorithms, right? So like Markov chain Monte Carlo, for example. And, Mm. uh, and there's a lot of software that's kind of coming on the scene right now to kind of abstract a lot of that implementation. So like Stan and there's, uh, now this is a really cool package actually now called um, called Greta, which uses like Google TensorFlow to fit these kind of Markov chain Monte Carlo uh, oh, models, cool. and um, yeah. and that stuff I find is pretty complicated. But like with Stan and all these other kinds of softwares, you you write like you know ten lines of code and it fits the whole model using MCMC. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know when I teach this kind of stuff in my course, I usually make the students implement it by hand at least once, right? Even if they're going to, because I feel like the implementation of the procedure, like tells like teaches you about the, uh, the various, you know, things that will kind of come up, you know, in Mm -hmm. these kinds of problems. Um, right. And so I still, I still, maybe I'm an old fogey, but I still feel like there's some value in kind of making students kind of, 
uh, like write all the samplers you know from scratch in R you know so that they can so that they can have the experience of kind of like what's going to come up because I can't necessarily predict what's going to come up where what issues are going to come up where when they're implementing a sampler so they just need to kind of do it for themselves so that they can kind of experience it for themselves um, mm-hmm. yeah no I I mean that that always was my preferred way um, like I, I for some reason I'm thinking about calculus and the fundamental theorem of calculus where you, you like do it once by hand I can't remember if it's integrating or if it's the other direction. <laughs> okay. Differentiate calculus. <laughs> it's probably integrating. That's what I'm going to guess. Yeah, but it's uh, you like do it once by hand, and then they're like, "Oh, you can actually just move the little number on the exponent over." And oh like, yeah, that works. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and well, it's it like, been, but you do it, it by yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do it by hand once. Anyway, it always seemed really... I mean, that's like the perfect example because doing it by hand was like really hard. I mean, my high school self felt like it was really hard. Um, But then doing the little rule with the exponent is like super easy, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember this? Uh, Yeah, of course I remember it, yeah. Did you have to do the same thing? Uh, Yeah, no. I I think that, that would be like differentiating, right? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought, yeah. Well, so here's the question. Do you feel like there's something to be learned by doing it that way, I guess? Well, so, yeah, I mean, to me, that's the extreme example because it's it's not like every time I differentiate it, I would think of the process. But there's a lot of other things where I do think of the process, like the original derivation when I'm doing it. Uh Uh-huh. but I also don't know if that's just me. I mean, this is where someone with expertise in like pedagogy would be interesting to talk to because I don't know if I'm just like a weird, you know, math oriented nerd <laughs> where that always was really satisfying to have the derivation and then that would help me, um, you know. That would help me remember how to do something, but I don't think everyone works that way. You know what I mean? You don't think so? Not everyone's just like you? <laughs> I have learned that one the hard way. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, it is a shame, but... Uh... Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> anyway. Well, so just but, one, yeah. one contrast that I'll make, though, is that... I mean, so I do think it's important. For example, in my example, I say I think it's important to kind of people to implement you know, Monte, Markov Chain Monte Carlo samplers. But for example, I don't think it's important for people to implement their own like matrix inversion algorithm so that they can like do regression, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. So I don't have yeah. them like write the Gaussian elimination solver or whatever. Like I just say, here's LM and use it, right? Um, yeah. Because yeah. I don't necessarily think that there's something to be learned by inverting a matrix by hand. Although, I mean, maybe there right, is, but right. I, for, most, for the most part, I don't think there is. And so I don't, yeah. but to be honest, I don't know how I draw that line. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I was about to say, maybe it's somewhat correlated with um, like the percent of times you see an error. <laughs> Yeah, you know so like I mean? in the back of your mind, you're kind of keeping track of like the rate at which surprising things occur. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, as we discussed, I feel like early days, it is true that the different like matrix inversion or like the method, like the deep internal methods in R do have like nuanced differences between them um, that could surface in strange ways. Or, or, do you have, or maybe they were you don't. thinking of something in particular? <laughs> 
I thought you brought that up. <laughs> like, oh. I'm not thinking. I, the only thing I'm thinking of is you bringing it up once where it's like there are different ways to invert a matrix. And... Oh, you know, I, I, actually, there was a, I do have a funny story about this. So I was at a meeting one time and, um, and the meeting was about like how do we teach undergraduates like computing in statistics, right? And like what should we teach? And, and everyone had their like pet thing, right? I mean, these, that's how these meetings always go, right? Um, and, uh, and one person, I, I don't remember who it was, but uh, one person got up and said, you know, we, we need to teach, like, essentially what you might call numerical analysis. So, like, in, inversion of matrices and, like, all these little fiddly details about what could happen if you have, like, you know, numerical problems, things like that. Um, and, which was all, of course, true. Um, but I think um, it was, like, I think it was Thomas Lumley. He kind of got up and he said... He's like, yeah, that stuff's all true, but like, they basically only occur in like ridiculous cases, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, and so like, the average person like doing regression um, isn't, especially the average undergraduate doing regression isn't going to like those problem those problems will not come up. And so, mm-hmm. and uh, it was interesting because it's like, you know, it's not like anyone was saying anything that was not true. It's just a question of like prioritization and uh, and 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 like you said, like the rate at which we empirically experience these kind of scenarios to occur yeah yeah and the effect size of the scenarios like is are you talking about something that will change the results of an analysis i feel like i heard that so many times in grad school where it always like the caveat would be like and i have seen this change the outcome of an experiment (laughs) right yeah something like that where it's like yes this caused a problem that was sufficiently big that it caused a wrong like the truth was not seen because of this um, yeah, 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 and the fact the fact of the matter is that is that often a method you like you won't see a problem applying a certain method, but then when that because like the in the application domain that it's used like it just doesn't come up. But then when it gets used in like some totally different domain, um, then then that 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 can like exacerbate the problems that usually de- never occur. Um, and I, I have seen that actually. There was a famous example of that in air pollution. Um, where they were using generalized additive models to kind of look at these kind of non-parametric uh, trends. And, uh, and the, the issue is that the effect sizes that they were looking at were super, super small. Um, it's inherently small. I, you can imagine air pollution is not like, <laughs> not, you're not like falling over in the street, right? So, um, <laughs> so the effect sizes are really small. And in that case, it was, like the, it was like the convergence criterion for the generalized additive model. Like if you was really important to estimating the size of that effect, so if you had like a really loose convergence criterion, the effect was a lot bigger. And if you made it really strict, then it got smaller. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, mm-hmm. and like no one had ever like thought about that before. And, and so um, it was like, actually, it was like a scandal. Actually, it was in the New York Times. Um, really? Uh, oh, yeah. Wow. Because all these analyses had to be redone, basically. Um, wow. And uh, huh. Yeah. That that seems like I'm impressed that the New York Times was reporting on that. <laughs> I mean, I can understand the scientific effect was big, but that's probably the first time that like generalized additive models was like like was it mentioned by name? In the I, New York I Times? don't think it, I think the article is like software problem causes you know oh. analyses mm. to be redone. It wasn't like generalized additive models convergence criteria. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so great though. <laughs> I'll see, I'll see if I can dig up the article. It's it's probably it's I'm sure it's in the archive somewhere. I'll I'll try to dig it up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's that's I mean, so I feel like our our extreme negative gut reaction to sort of a a one function, you know, oh, you put in a data set like a true black box where you put in a data set and out comes an analysis like, you know, the probability of that being somehow misleading is like very high, I would say 75, 80 percent chance. Yeah, I mean, depending on the analysis, obviously, but like for any analysis that isn't one thing and even for an analysis that is one thing, like just a T-test, if you put any data set in it, that's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But just like blindly, but blindly taking methods from one analysis and applying it to a new data set, if it's sufficiently, if there's like three or more things that happen, I would say the chance of there being something bad is, is high. Yeah. 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 Um, I just think, I, I think my only other comment is that like, I think it's, um, I mean, I think the, often the goal in life is to not have to worry about some things so that you can think about other things. Right. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, uh, like, for, like, you know, not having to worry about money. So then you could like think about other things. Right. Um, and right, I think in data right. analysis, I feel like it's, uh, you know, that's, I don't know if that's the right target you know it's like to not have to worry about the details of your analysis so i think the details of your analysis i mean that that's 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 what it is right that's that is the analysis right yeah um and so um it's like or or you take the zen approach and no action will stop you from worrying (laughs) (laughs) the stopping of worrying has to come from inside you you know you have to just sit with the worry (laughs) (laughs) i did not know that okay you can work however much you're never gonna make all the problems go away you know is that right so anyway (laughs) sorry is this another existential crisis (laughs) no it's not a crisis i I just think the conversation has has like elevated to another level now (laughs) yeah but the point is i agree that humans spend a lot of time like trying to do something so that they don't have to worry about it anymore whether or not that is like helpful is another discussion but i agree that like treating a data analysis as if it's not the work is a big problem yes there you go yeah yeah and like and acting like um i mean and that's where i think like the having like the like having a data scientist who really cares about the problem and is like excited to see what happened and like did people you know click on this or did they you know finish this form or you know whatever the actual problem is like having people who care about it causes them to look at a lot of different things just to wrap their head around like what happened um whereas i feel like the kind of the people like the the times when you see people wanting to just finish it and check mark and have it done um like the concern is elsewhere you know what i mean yeah 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 like the concerns like oh i want to move on to the next thing it's not like i really want to understand the user experience right now right do you suspect that there may be a segment of the population out there who thinks that what we're the way that we're talking about this is rather old-fashioned and quaint <laughs> Oh, I'm sure that's true. I suspect there is, yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, one thing that popped into my mind immediately was there's sort of this whole AI data scientist trend or AI statistician or whatever. And 
I mean, I don't know. I, I, I totally uh, like understand that standpoint because maybe, maybe we're just clinging to the wheel spinning that we enjoy, Roger. Like, maybe this isn't actually useful for the truth, you know. Um, insofar as the truth is useful. <laughs> <laughs> so right now, I'm imag- I'm imagining a scenario where you and I are like huddled in a cave somewhere. <laughs> The, the last two people left who who still care about learning about yeah. what's going on. We're like implementing some complex method by hand with like <laughs> stick figures that we've like <laughs> drawn on the wall. Like <laughs> things got things got apocalyptic I, pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how we got there so fast. But <laughs> Sorry. It's no. I th- I mean I. I mean, I do. I definitely have wondered about this for sure, because there are moments when I'm like, what is so wrong with an A-B testing system? And it'd probably be fine. Um, I, I, like, it's 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 fine sometimes. And then maybe I'm over worrying about, like, the times when it ha- when I've seen it not be fine. But um, I don't know. I don't know. It would be... I mean, I think our intuition is coming from errors that we've seen and errors that we've been taught do exist somewhere. Right. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And so, but it's important to update, you know, update our priors on the frequency of these errors and the impact of those errors. Yeah. Right. And I feel like the rigidity around that can be what makes people seem kind of old fashioned. And that's a great point actually. And, um, I, I was actually thinking about this today cause like, there's like a, I feel like there's an early adopter phenomenon, you know, like mm-hmm. with, with software. So, for example, like if you use software, like when it first comes out, right, mm-hmm. then like, of course, there's problems, right? I mean, right. of course there yeah. is, right? And so you might be thinking like, you might think, okay, you know, there's all these problems, so I'm not going to use it now. I'm just going to use my, my usual thing, right? And then like, I don't know, years later, everyone's using the software and you're like, oh, but, you know, but there are all these problems with it, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, mm-hmm. no, there aren't, th- th- those problems are gone now, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, I wonder if there's the same thing that I mean that could go on or like uh, with A/B testing or whatever you know you know you're doing. It's like oh, when we first did it, there were all these issues, right? Mm-hmm, uh, and so mm-hmm. and so therefore they must still have those issues, but maybe they don't. You know? Yeah. No. Yeah. And like the types of the frequency. I mean, inherent in that is sort of a uh, the type of data that you expect to see, and that's obviously changed dramatically in the last twenty years, right? Where like having rapid experiments with hundreds of thousands or millions of users is not something that, you know, Gossett was thinking about. Um, and so it's like, I feel like I was trained. For, I mean, obviously I was trained in a biostat setting, but I was trained for kind of smaller data sets where you might have some serious like bias or, you know, like issues with the data collection. But now I work in like kind of the opposite scenario where it's like very easy to implement experiment um, and have lots of, lots of data, but then the types of things you try to do with it are really different. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that you mentioned Thomas Lumley earlier and he has, um, he's the one who wrote the big LM package. Um, Right. And so, and that's just a, that's a cool package where it do, it's for doing linear models in R, um, where the default method saves the residuals 
and maybe the original data set too, or I guess just the residuals, but you could always like, that's like a one-to-one with the original data set. Um, so you've, I'm pausing so you can say yes or no. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I, I was going to say, I've never used this package. So you used it? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, so, so I mean, there's a lot of things that are helpful about Big LM, but one of the most easy to describe to people is that, like, linear model fits fit objects in base R have all the residuals. So you essentially have the data stored in that object. So they're very large, um, but big LM doesn't do that. So I just ran into that recently where someone was asking me that and I was like, yeah, I use big LM because the object will be way smaller. I actually think the default LM not only stores the residuals, but restores the entire model matrix. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, it's a big object. Yeah. <laughs> And then I'm sure I'm sure he did something fancy in implementation so that it solves faster. Um, and that and so I was just thinking about that because I was like, well, that's of course why Thomas Lumley would stand up and kind of resist someone being like, students need to learn exactly exactly the factorization or whatever that's going on. And it's like, well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I've been reasonable about this, and I make a few small assumptions, but I've like studied it deeply, and it doesn't cause problems for like ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time. Yeah, I just think that what statisticians do, generally speaking, probably you know keeps numerical analysts awake at night all around the world. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just, but you know, it is it it is what it is. I don't know what to say. Yeah. But it, well, but do you do you think keeping them up at night? Because it's like in order to get kept up at night, you have to think like someone's getting the wrong cancer drug because of this, or you know, some big effect. And well, it's you, like, you you may think that matrix conversion is not such a big deal, but let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like, what are the chances that it would be? But I guess you never know because it's like. It's like you know, one person's special case is an entire per- is another person's entire field of study, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's well, we've solved nothing as usual, <laughs> but <laughs> which suggests that we should uh, move on to free advertising. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I have I have one this week. What have you got? Yeah, so um, this is actually it's so funny. This is um, a friend of mine from college who then we went to the same grad school. So she went to Hopkins School of Public Health. Um, and then she went to, then we both moved to Brooklyn and now we both live in San Francisco, like a block from each other. So it's just <laughs> this strange coincidence. But anyway, um, she she is a um, the CEO and founder of a startup called Callisto. And what they do, it's, um, it's like technology to combat sexual assault. Um, and the idea is that you, and I, you know, I definitely encourage people to look, um, to look at their information, but it's essentially a way for people to report it in a lower stakes, um, scenario. So you sort of like report something to the app and then if it matches with someone else, so like if two people were assaulted by the same person, then it like, it starts to initiate processes, um, like with authorities or with the campus security or whatever. But the idea is that it, it allows for people to report something but not feel like they're going to be alone if they go to authorities. Right. Um, and it's been really effective. Um, like my, my friend Jess, she, she went to Hopkins um, studying this. And so it's, it's, I think it's like a generally, um, a generally like accepted method of, uh, of like 
of, of doing this. I don't know a better way to say that, but it, it is, it seems to hit the right balance of like reporting things and making the survivors feel like psychologically, like, you know, taken care of. Um, and so anyway, the point is it's really cool. And there's been so much news about this recently that, um, you might be feeling motivated to like know what you can do. So I highly recommend, um, donating to them and just generally supporting them. So they have some job openings too. Yeah. Oh yeah. They have job openings and they have, you can donate to, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. You can donate. It's a nonprofit. Um, and then, I mean, just like also, I, I don't think, I think so an institution has to like opt into it. Um, so they're going for college campuses right now. Um, so, uh, it's not like ever anyone can just use it, but you can donate now. And then they're obviously like trying to expand to like in other institutions and industries and stuff. Right. Okay, yeah. cool. I'll, uh, mm-hmm. we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, so you can check it out. Um, my, uh, free advertising is somewhat is we're going from the uh, sublime to the earthly here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I have I've been playing a game actually. Oh, excellent! Uh, I haven't played a computer game like I think in like fifteen years, basically. Um, yeah, but your son's getting old enough now, right? <laughs> is that what to get into games? Is that what's causing it? Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, it's not. So uh, I just I just found out about this game. Have you heard of this game, Universal Paperclips? No. It is. It's kind of crazy. So y- you can either play it on. It's basically a huge JavaScript. <laughs> application mm-hmm. uh but there is an there's like an app that you, you actually can get it like in the app store if you want to play on your phone but i don't recommend playing on your phone um mm-hmm. it's 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 it, so it kind of it falls into the category there's like a, a small category of games that I, I would characterize as like dashboard games um mm-hmm. where basically like you look at a dashboard and things update and you have to like click buttons in response <laughs> okay <laughs> wait then this is fun. <laughs> well, you know, I think if you ever played a game like Civilization or or like um, something like that, where you're like controlling like stuff, mm-hmm. uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of along that line, but like with less graphics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So this game basically you are creating you're just manufacturing paper clips that's all you do right um <laughs> and uh, you and basically you are like an ai system and like and you and the and the people out there are like training you and oh, um yeah and so you have to like manufacture <laughs> you have to make paper clips and then you have to like and at some point the paper clips like you you create like a you figure out how to like g- generate like the paper clips automatically so you don't have to like do them by hand and then and then you're like you have like uh things to like improve the efficiency of your uh you know steel manufacturing and then like it's like i don't know it's, wait it's, and this is this is like is this actually fun or like is this something that you think is fun that most people would not think is fun or is this like i don't a know popular game i don't know like, i don't I have no idea but all i know is that like i clicked on, i like went to this website and then I basically like blacked out for a day. <laughs> like, I don't know what happened. But... <laughs> like I think oh, it, 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 I think it plays on the same instinct that like games like kind of like Candy Crush and like the games that where you have like the the never ending stream of in app purchases. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like they play on the same area of the brain wherever that is. So, but this is like free, so you don't have to worry about that. But um, mm-hmm. it's. Uh, I don't know. It's just like, it's very, 
it's weird. But you know, so the one thing that I was the game itself is like it is what it is, right? But I was th- <laughs> I was thinking that like you could you could make like a data science slash statistics game in the same in the very mm-hmm. in a very similar style, right? Like you could yeah, have a dashboard yeah. where there's data coming in and mm-hmm. there are like analyses being done, and you have to kind of or you maybe you have to do those analyses, and then you have to kind of react mm-hmm. to them in kind of real realish time, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's like like simulate a website with things going wrong, like little treasure hunt where it's like auto corrects on for the passwords and like yeah. there's like problems and then like, yeah, <laughs> have and like people you, like or, go through yeah, you, or you can have <laughs> things like CEO. you know do A B tests on this feature and then like the results come back then you have to analyze the data and see if they're see if they're you know relevant to you or whatever right you could um of course i mean the game would simulate the data but like you as the player would have to like i don't know run a t-test or something like that right or look make a plot or something right uh and make a decision i need to play i will i will verify let's have a a second data point here on whether or not paper clips is fun first (laughs) oh i don't i don't think i'm the only person who's played it so i think there's probably i don't have the data but there's data out there that suggests that it is fun but um (laughs) just google universal paper clips it's yeah Yeah. but i'm I'm resisting doing that this very moment okay don't do it right now (laughs) yeah like the podcast goes on for twelve hours, right? Yeah, just like oh my god, I figured out how to better fold the paper clip. Do you come up with like a more efficient paper clip design? Because that would be very intriguing. Well, the, the, it's kind of like you know, it'll, there'll be like a thing where you can like there'll be like an option to like come up with better paper clip design. But in order to to do that, you have to like earn a certain number of points and you know and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to do a, a, like a series B funding round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> You're disrupting the paperclip industry. You have to... <laughs> um, paper actually, the, the game it gets. I haven't gotten to the end yet, but it actually it gets a little dark towards the end. Actually. <laughs> oh my god! Really? Yeah. What yeah, could go kinda... wrong? I, just, um, uh, I don't want to. It's spoil like, do it. you want to like employ children who are underpaid? Not quite like that. It's more like like they're robots, kind of like fighting each other and stuff like that. Yeah, kind of. Thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, that's hasn't occurred yet. But <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it will soon. <laughs> I don't know why uh, that that reminded me. I think it was saying like a series <laughs> B funding round or whatever. I was thinking about how. Um, I, I don't know if I've talked about this before. I have a San Francisco story where um, I have a cafe that I really like. Uh, it's called Workshop Cafe. This is like advertising too. I was, like, I was describing it to a coworker. Where I was like, this is kind of embarrassing, but I, I'm pretty sure it's like a VC funded cafe. <laughs> <laughs> really? And uh, yeah, yeah. And like, it, but it, I really like it because you, you go and you can pay, you pay for your spot at the desk. Um, so all the desks have little numbers on it. And so you check in and you just say, Hey, I'm going to check into desk 44. Um, and you pay like $2 an hour, something pretty cheap. Um, might even be less than that. And then, um, you, (laughs) you can sit there and then you can order from, like you can sign in on an app and then you can order from your app and say like, I would like an oatmeal and a coffee. And they'll like come out and bring you oatmeal and a coffee. Um, and so there's just a bunch of people there working and I have to say it's like pretty nice. (laughs) 
in a city where otherwise you kind of have to like fight for you know coffee shop space it's nice to just have a place that solved it for you and Um, like and so it's just like a table like i'm trying i'm having trouble visualizing this yeah yeah it's like a table with spots and then you sit at your spot and there's people next to you yep yep and they have a few spots with monitors so you can reserve a monitor oh and Uh, you like plug in i see yeah exactly but yeah, I mean it's it's not much more than that. Like you just sit there, and then you can order stuff, and they bring it to you. How is that different from like can... a co-working space? Um, it's it's probably not. I mean, I think a co-working space you would need to. Um, I uh, my understanding of co-working spaces was that it was for like two, three week chunks. Like you would. Yeah, you I think there's a yeah, more of a com- like it's more much of a more of like a, oh, this is our office for the next four months, not right. like. I'm going to sit here for three hours on Wednesday afternoons, you know? Um, (laughs) All right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So tales from San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) What's what's that called again? It's called Workshop Cafe. All right. All right. The oatmeal's Um, really good. Oh, yeah. And they serve food like all day. Yep. Yeah, that's um, pretty good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Isn't fighting for space at the coffee shop like part of the coffee shop experience? Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, it isn't is. that the whole point of that you have like, to interact really with slow people? Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The nice thing about this is that it really minimizes how much you have to interact with people. <laughs> <laughs> there should be like a button in the app for I would like to go to the bathroom, please watch my stuff. So you don't actually have to ask the person next to you to watch your stuff. Like you can just click the <laughs> Please come watch my stuff button. It's also, I, they are building in a social feature where you can say, you can like put your photo on it and say, you know, I am a data scientist at Stitch Fix. Like, come say hi. Please pitch to me, you know? <laughs> so, no, and then really? people will come by and talk to you. Uh, oh. Yeah, well, the, not the please pitch to me. I was making that up. But no, I yeah. mean, I can't really imagine why else people would want to be interrupted in their work. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's the idea. Uh, it's a bunch of people working on startups. This is why people hate San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't blame them. And I'm okay with the fact that I am enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> You're straddling like two worlds right now, basically. Yeah. I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting the full San Francisco. Experience. And you're doing it very well, I think. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's anyway. Now I I did not intend to do two free advertisements, but it just happened. One was I mean I like both of them obviously, but yeah, uh, my first one remains close to my heart in terms of you know something I care about. So, all right, um, I think that's our show for this week. So um, you can reach us at nssdeviations at gmail dot com, and you can tweet us at nssdeviations. See you next time.